Hi there, how are you doing? Thank you so much for choosing to listen to this week's NTT20 podcast, the Monday pod, where I, Ali Maxwell, and him on the line, George Ellick, talk all things EFL. It was a busy, busy weekend across the three leagues. We almost had a full slate, but I think we lost one game, didn't we, in League Two, ah. to dodgy weather. But plenty of midweek fixtures as well. Things are as busy as ever. George, this podcast is sponsored by the Skybet EFL Rewards app, a free app that rewards you for being a fan of an EFL team. I mean, you, yes, but not just you specifically. I mean, everyone, in fact, anyone who's a fan of an EFL team. Yeah, I mean, you take the name of the app, the Skybet EFL Rewards app, Skybet, sponsor the EFL, yep, the EFL, well, if you listen to this and you don't like the EFL, what are you doing here? Rewards, who doesn't like to be rewarded? So it is all in one, a necessary app to have and to download if you're an EFL fan. Loads of opportunities, loads of things to do there. You check in um, when you're watching when your team playing, which gives you the chance to win prizes, which Ali will run through in a second. You can also play the predictor as well, predicting the scores from, from each league, um, home win, away win or draw again to win prizes. It's absolute class. And I recommend getting it now getting used to it because hopefully when we're in stadiums quite soon it should absolutely kick off it's been great to to get some nice messages from you guys who have been using the app and winning rewards as well Eamon won a match ball the Skybet EFL replica match ball courtesy of Mitre Alex also won a match pass as well and let us know about it so thank you guys hope you're enjoying the app it's the Skybet EFL rewards app check in predict the scores Download the app now and get yourself in with a chance of winning rewards. It's time to get into the action. What a busy weekend, Sp- particularly, I was going to say Sp- that. Particularly, yeah. yeah. Particularly, George, in the championship, it was a great weekend for Norwich and Watford at the top of the table. For some of the playoff chasers outside the playoff spots, Cardiff, Borough, Stoke and Barnsley with a good weekend. At the bottom as well, Birmingham, Coventry, Huddersfield, And in that sort of no man's land, Nottingham Forest and QPR keep on rolling as well. So let's get into all of that, starting with the delight towards the top of the table for Norwich and Watford. Our league leaders, George Norwich, they are over that blip, aren't they? 1-0 winners against Rotherham. Paul Warren, the Rotherham manager, famously born and bred in and around Norwich. Big Norwich fan growing up. What was the story of this game? What caught your eye the most? The result and what it means for the table, I think, is what caught my eye the most. Because Norwich were, were good value for their win. I mean, it's it's the same as what we say about Rotherham consistently. They don't make it particularly easy for teams, even though they are not one of the better teams in the division. And certainly, if you look at their, the team that they have to put out, they shouldn't be. Um, they still make it fairly difficult. And it was nearly one of the strikes of the season. I'm not going to say goals of the season from, uh, from Ben Wiles. A ridiculous half volley, which... Um, you know, I haven't seen a ball strike that well for a long time, hitting the clipping the top of the crossbar. But except for that, Rotherham didn't really threaten Norwich too much. And it was only some poor finishing that really prevented Norwich from being further ahead, especially a particularly weak one from Timo Puki at nil-nil. Uh, but he made amends for that when he was put through one-on-one. A really, really good um, dummy, I should say, from Todd Cantwell as well for the goal. It uh, feels like Cantwell is the player maybe in the last few weeks who started to step it up a gear, I guess, for this Norwich side. Take the leap. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, you think of Puki and, and Buendia. I mean, whilst Campbell might get the headlines because of interest of Liverpool and stuff in the past, I still think of Buendia and Puki as being the star too. But certainly in recent weeks, the work that Campbell is doing has been a big part of this good Norwich form. And it's just, it, it just goes to show how quickly things change. I mean, and we see it always at the top end of the championship where just a couple of weeks ago, Swansea beat Norwich 2-0 at Swansea. And we thought to ourselves, right, this is 
three teams trying to get two promotion places and one is going to miss out and finish in the playoffs. Just three games later, and you've got Watford spoiling the party and Norwich putting themselves eight points clear of second. Um, so what we should learn from that is to not draw too many firm conclusions, even though we are now getting to the stage where you know, with 15 games left of the season for those who've played 31, um, an eight-point gap becomes quite hard to to uh, to claw back, especially because Norwich are in such good form as it stands at the moment. It's just a case of keeping keeping players fit. Um, for Norwich, we saw Emi Buendia in the second half look for a moment like he was going to be injured. And it's that kind of moment that could still spell trouble going forward. But um, yeah, this was... Yeah, either way, this was a massive weekend for Norwich, even if it wasn't a great performance. And that's in part due to what happened elsewhere. Yeah, you mentioned Buendia. It's probably the most eye-catching thing for me looking back through all the games and the stats this weekend was that Emi Buendia had the most touches of any player on the pitch. I went back through all the games in the Championship this weekend and I, I just want to make it clear how like unusual that is, how rare that is. Here are the other players who had the most touches in the pitch in the Championship this weekend. Five of them fullbacks, Byrne, Jack Hunt, Amari Bell, Maxime Collin, Tommy Smith and Norrington Davis of Stoke uh, were, were level at the top in terms of touches on the pitch. And the rest were centre-backs, Michael Morrison of Reading, Hutchinson, Vallejo, Liam Lindsay, Lloyd Kelly of Bournemouth, and then Matthias Jensen, it's kind of the other uh, exception, centre midfielder for Brentford. He had the most touches on the pitch in that game. But for someone in Buendia's position to have the most touches in, in, in a game, any game, I think is pretty astonishing. Now, from a Rotherham perspective, I don't understand how you allow that to happen. That feels like it should be objective number one when you play against Norwich to reduce the balls into Buendia, to literally send someone round the pitch with him if you have to, uh, in the way that Middlesbrough did very well against Campwell and Buendia a few weeks ago. Um, for him to have had the most touches of the ball of any player on the pitch feels like a bit of a failing of, uh, of game plan or of execution. But, you know, it's another way for us to explain why we love Buendia, uh, another way for him to surprise and delight us. Uh, in terms of Watford 2, Derby 1, George, we watched this one on Friday night. What did you make of the Friday night fair? Yeah, it, it wasn't a vintage performance by any stretch from Watford, I wouldn't say. It was a, a performance in which they had two shots in the first 20 minutes, both of which went in. And then they were fairly comfortable at most times in keeping Derby at bay. Um, the goal that Derby did get back was an own goal from Troost Ekong. Kazim Richards should have got a goal back, which shouldn't have been ruled out. But that was again at at 2-1. Um, sorry, at 2-0, so it would have made it 2-1. And Watford were able to shut the, shut the game down. You know, this is a good Derby side who, who are improving pretty quickly. Um, but we've often said that maybe the reason why we don't consider Watford to be up there with the likes of... Um, whether it's you know Norwich or Brentford or whoever, is because their attacking output should be so much better than it is. But when you are able to suffocate games and stop teams from creating plenty of good opportunities, then you pick up points very, very quickly. And that's not why we are now seeing them level on points with Brentford after their decent run. But again, I'm not sitting here buying Chisco Munoz having sorted Watford out on the back of three wins. You know, One was against a Bristol City side in total freefall. One was another win thanks to a penalty, which is fine because they've made the most of those this season. And then this again was a marginal win at home against against a Derby team, which they probably on the balance of play just about deserve, but can count themselves maybe a little bit fortunate to have that two goal cushion early on in a game that was scrappy and lacked any real attacking class beyond Will Hughes's good passing performance. And of course, did he cap with a goal as well. So it's just more of the same, I think, for Watford. It's, it's more points 
collected whilst you can't help feeling like there there has to be about four more gears that they could go through, <laughs> um, which is which is strange to say. It was nice to see Ishmael Assar properly hit top gear for that first goal. I honestly, mm. like I thought there was... Took a, your breath away. I thought there was a glitch on the TV that we were watching <laughs> the game on. I, I don't think I've seen a championship player move that quickly, I'll be honest, um, ever. And that was quite exciting, I must say. Having said that, the fact that it was kind of ricocheted in off João Pedro's heel, he didn't really know much about it. I have to admit, and it, it might seem like quite weird analysis, but given how important the first goal of a game is, the teams that score first, they win the match something like 72% of the time. So given how important that first goal is to get, mm. it is quite striking how jammy or lucky or fortunate a run Watford are on in terms of how they get that first goal. Because because they're so good defensively, that, you know, once they're ahead, they tend to hold on to those leads. But I've gone back through the last nine games. Friday's goal which gave them the lead was a ricochet off of Pedro's heel that he knew nothing about against Preston it was a penalty obviously against Bristol City the 6-0 to be fair they would have won this anyway but it was a cutback from Saar which ricocheted off the defender hit the crossbar and dropped to Semmer like on the goal line for him to tap it in after two minutes Coventry they didn't score QPR penalty Millwall didn't score Stoke penalty Barnsley penalty and even the game against Huddersfield cleverly tackled the goalkeeper uh, for their opening goal in that one. So can I stretch that and try and find a conclusion, which is they probably won't keep scoring the first goal as regularly in, in games unless they can genuinely start creating some more legitimate chances. People will roll their eyes, but the amount of penalties they've been given isn't going to to stretch out uh, in the long term, you'd think. And maybe some of these lucky ricochets, lucky bounces won't go their way as well. So plen- plenty of work still to do. I mean, the one thing I would say on that is part of the reason why they often score the first goal is because they they very rarely concede. Yes. So games games are longer at nil nil for them than they are for most teams, and there has to be something. I mean, the penalty stuff is is so troubling. I mean, what I would say is that for two, you know, Ishmael Assar and Ken Semmer, whilst being players who shouldn't be playing second tier football probably in any country in Europe, they aren't necessarily goal threats from that position you'd expect. I mean, they are going to score goals because they're good attacking players, but they're not, you know, inside forwards you can anticipate will get 10, 15, 20 goals in a season. So, you know, their their dribbling ability and their ability, you know, their willingness to carry the ball into the box will undoubtedly probably lead to more penalties in the same way that we see with a certain team in the Premier League over the last 18 months or so. Um, but I do agree with you that it's it's unsustainable, but it feels like the the variance, if that makes sense, the way it's going to play out, probably, you know, they've reaped enough benefit from it already yeah. that even if it does go the other way, it's not going to really make an impact on their season. Yeah, well, great weekend for them. Not so for Brentford and for Swansea. George, let's start with Coventry 2, Brentford 0. This one, the early game on Saturday. Bees have lost three straight now, is it? Three games in the space of, of a week. Uh, but they were beaten, inarguably, by the better side on the weekend in Coventry, who put in, a, 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 similar to Brentford's falling off a cliff to an extent over the last week, Coventry then put in a performance that you couldn't really see coming based on what had been a really poor run up to that point. So just a, a fantastic win for the Sky Blues. Yeah, a really good win. And you know it's a bit of a cliche, but I'm sure when Coventry saw the team sheets out and they saw no Ivan Tony in the squad and... And no, uh, Josta Silva in, in the first eleven. I have no doubt that they're, you know, the, the poor form we'd seen in the in the Cardiff game. I mean, they played okay against Norwich, to be fair. Um, but 
I think that gave them that bit of spark and that bit of belief that they could go here and do something. And that was what their performance was full of. You know, they didn't sit off Brentford at all. We know they're a team who like to press from the front. Callum O'Hare was brilliant again. Such a live wire on the board and so good off it as well. Tyler Walker coming up with the goals. Biamu proving a physical menace as we're used to. But the thing that impressed me the most with Coventry was how, you know, they were 2 0 up to the best to the most proficient attacking side in the EFL, the team who've scored the most goals in the EFL. And they never looked like conceding. They never let Brentford back into the game. They didn't drop off at all. We didn't see them invite pressure onto themselves whatsoever. You know, I tipped up Brentford goals on the betting show. So I was watching this, even at 2-0, craving just a Brentford goal to make it 2-1 uh, with because of my own pocket. And it, I mean, I turned over. I turned over to the Premier League game with five minutes to go because it was fairly obvious to anybody watching that Brentford weren't going to score in however long against this commentary side who was so comfortable in their lead. And, and similar to Barnsley's performance against Bees recently, it wasn't as if this was a sit back, deep low block and just you know try and nick a goal on the counter. Coventry pressed high, they were really mobile from the front with Walker and with Biamu and with Callum O'Hare who is just, you know, he's here to stay at this level, that's for sure. He's been a real bright spot. Could, uh, could be higher. I think that's doing a bit of disservice. Well, he's here to stay for the meantime, at least, I guess <laughs> is what I'm saying. He is. He's really impressed all season, not just with, you know, I thought he was a diminutive, creative attacking player who perhaps didn't score enough goals, but who, who did set up a lot, a lot of chances and was a smart footballer. I hadn't quite appreciated until this season just how impressive he is physically and with his work rate off the ball. Um, and, you know, when Coventry at their, are at their best, O'Hare tends to be pretty involved. What I would also say is that with or without a certain player stats can be a little noisy, a little misleading at times, but Liam Kelly of Coventry, his case for being the crucial player for this Coventry side is is quite compelling. Um, he, he came back into the team this week. He's missed quite a lot through injury. Um, and when he's played 45 minutes or more in the league this season, Coventry have won four, drawn four, lost one, 16 points in nine games when Kelly's played more than a, or a half or more of football. Uh, and in the other 22 games where he hasn't featured or he's featured in less than a half, just 18 points in 22 games. So hopefully his return to the starting lineup will see an uptick and a, well, a uh, continuity after this good display from Coventry and of course Tyler Walker at the double um, you've just got to hope that he stays fit now from from here on till the end of the season I think he's got five league goals uh, and I was just thinking about Walker because he, he's evidently got a goal scorer's instinct um, and that is still that like beautifully intangible thing that I think anyone who watches a lot of football thinks they can identify when someone has it and when they don't have it and I think Tyler Walker has it in terms of raising his game from this point you know you look at some of the strikers thriving in the Premier League people like Watkins Calvert-Lewin to an extent as well and and I think Walker could do with if it's possible bulking up a bit over the next few years and trying to become a little stronger in his upper body he's not the tallest he's probably not going to be um, your old school target man in terms of of winning knockdowns and flick-ons but in the modern target man mould perhaps he could get there with a bit more physical development and and obviously staying fit is going to be the kind of the first part of that um, and then another individual to mention for Coventry making it four uh, Julian de Costa the right wing back they signed him from the French second tier in the summer obviously Darbo was their player of the season last year and so de Costa hasn't got too many opportunities 
until Darbo got injured. He's played the last few games, and I must admit it was a, a great write-up, a thread on Twitter from Chris, whose handle is Analytics Forest, Nottingham Forest fan, who really liked Da Costa's performance against Forest, um, has watched him a few more times, and, and yeah, did a really nice write-up on Twitter, which caught my eye. Looks like um, a right wing-back who's who, who looks really decent going forward, not just sort of pacey and whipping in good crosses, but a smart attacking player, you know, like we've talked about Pickering and NG. It's not just... Um, when you talk about being good from fullback in the final third, it doesn't just mean bombing on, overlapping and whipping in crosses. Mm-hmm. It can be, you know, smart passing and retaining possession and, and linking with teammates. So he's a player to watch, albeit he hasn't played a, a ton of football. And I think maybe defensively he's probably got some work to do. Um, how about the other big one? Huddersfield 4, Swansea 1. You've got your hand in the air as if I've moved on too quickly. Before we moved on, it's worth pointing out that Rico Henry, for those who don't know this, who want to follow the championship promotion race, uh, Rico Henry hobbled off with what looked like a really nasty hamstring injury because um, it just seemed like he... The amount of pain he seemed to be in was more than just somebody going down holding the hamstring putting the hand in the air. And it's one of those where the commentators always say straight away, yeah, you know immediately what this is. Um, and he has been... I mean, over the last three seasons, he's been an incredibly important part of what Brentford have done, both going forward and in defence. And you have to feel like an injury to him, um, you know, I tweeted about at the time, would be as significant or more, if not more significant, if he's going to be out to the end of the season um, than than Brentford dropping yet more points because he's a key player for them. Um, but not least because for good news for, for good news there, they don't have another left-footed mm-hmm. left back in their squad. Thompson having been sent out on loan to Swindon, so you've got I don't know maybe Ruslev moving across, um, Mads Rasmussen potentially. Both of those right-footed players so not ideal at all uh, a tough situation for them to be in Brentford that's for sure they've got Sheffield Wednesday in midweek now will Sheffield Wednesday follow the high pressing um, uh, game plan probably not uh, so it might be a diff- this one might look a little different to Brentford's last few games and that could play into their favour um, you-, you would have to say Huddersfield 4 Swansea 0 let's get on to this George let's Huddersfield had two points in eight league games prior to this. Swansea had been on a remarkable run. I think it was six wins in nine. Strong criticism of Huddersfield in recent weeks, certainly by myself. I've said a number of things over the last few weeks that were quite harsh. Uh, I said they, they couldn't put together more than brief spells in games where they looked impressive, that they didn't have the resolve to hold on to leads when they were tested, that they didn't have the... The, the quality or maybe the character to come back after they went behind. But none of that was in evidence on the weekend. Instead, we saw a strong performance, some brilliant football, specifically the, the moves for the second and third goals. It might have been Dwayne Holmes' bobbly rocket that caught the eye. That, that got... <laughs> we, call it, we calling it a volley? <laughs> no, bobbly <laughs> rocket, I've decided, is the one. Um, it's certainly not quite a volley. But yeah, um, uh, just an amazing performance absolutely out the blue this result George uh, and of course there's been a, a pretty good bit of maybe a bit of revisionism amongst the Swansea fan base as if uh, who, who I saw saying well actually we haven't played very well recently so we're not very surprised to see this yeah um, you know starting with Huddersfield this is a really important win for them um, and especially having gone ahead early on to then be pegged back just before half time and come out the way they did and dominate that second half was a return to some of the form that we saw previously in the season uh, when Josh Caroma was such an important <clears throat> attacking force for them. And they've they've lacked that 
bit of edge, that bit of spark up front. And I must say, I, I didn't expect Dwayne Holmes wearing number nine to be the person to fill those boots, but he certainly did that on Saturday. And, you know, the second goal was, um, even if it did come thanks to a fortuitous bobble, which made it sat, sit up beautifully for the way he hit it. I mean, it was an incredible strike either way and uh, amazing accuracy to do what he did. But then for Swansea, I mean, and we should give other players credit as well, I should say. I mean, Lewis O'Brien has been um, brilliant for Huddersfield for, for some time now, even when Huddersfield haven't been at their best. And his dominating performance from from midfield was really impressive. Um, they were good at the back. You know, I think Richard Keogh, even though his arrival hasn't really coincided with any good form, I think he gives them something a little bit different back there, especially when trying to see out games like this, which we saw um, for... Sorry for Swansea, though. I don't think there's need to be too concerned on the back of this result. I kind of agree with what some of the fans you've obviously seen on Twitter have said, where there there were warning signs here. Like the midweek performance against Forest was, I mean, that was a a fortuitous win. They probably didn't deserve to win that game. Um, And so there were warning signs that this was coming. Um, And then because their defensive record has been so good, you know, they conceded 15 goals so far this season and then they conceded four on the same day. We've spoken about in the past and we saw, you know, Statsbomb wrote that piece about EFL findings or EFL, what, I can't remember what it was so far. And, and they said, you know, the, the thing that Swansea are very, very good at is preventing the opposition from creating big chances. You know, they're not, they're not defensively as good as their numbers suggest, but they are very, very good at stopping players from getting on the ball in really dangerous areas. And so it was inevitable that one day a couple of strikes from range were going to fly in, basically. Like the O'Brien, the O'Brien shot to make it 2-1 was one. The home shot to make it 4-1 was another. The Campbell finish, you know, it's one of those where it's come off the inside of the post and just about gone in. You know, this was just basically a bad day at the office and Swansea have had remarkably, remarkably few. It's just a case now of ensuring they don't have too many between now and the end of the season. They have to raise their performance levels again. Um, but basically, we've always kind of said... Are Swansea going to go the whole season conceding twenty goals? Probably not. This kind of a this this, this game was coming just by pure chance. Wibbon was going to end up having a game where a few flew past him, and maybe it's good for Swansea that, that a couple happened on the same day. But yeah, Steve Cooper will want a reaction um, because they weren't good enough, and it hasn't been the first time. Uh, but I, I don't think they're going to suddenly turn into a team who lose four one every week. Great day to be a terrier, uh, and one of their young players getting a lot of plaudits as well. Aaron Rowe. He was so good, George, that even um, my big brother watching the highlights, who very rarely messages me about EFL highlights, felt the need to WhatsApp me saying, who's this row lad for Huddersfield? Because even in a, whatever it might have been, three-minute highlight edit, he's uh, he stood out as having a little something extra. Uh, my brother's got a great eye for talent, of course, taught me everything I know about football. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's true. If you look on, on social uh, Aaron Rowe was was really the one that Huddersfield fans seem most excited about. And you can understand why he's a 20-year-old a who's playing left wing-back, probably not what anyone would consider his natural position, probably more of a wide forward, think maybe could be the the heir apparent to Josh Caroma. If they go back to 4-3-3, currently playing three at the back, and, and, and hence why he was playing left wing-back. But if they were to go back to the 4-3-3, which I think would be their natural formation, I think that's how Corbran would like them to look, um, all being well with injuries and with a, a squad that makes a little bit more sense next season. Rowe could be 
yeah, it could be the backup to Karoma and maybe breaking through to the team because even as a right footer playing off that left side, he was coming inside, linking well with O'Brien um, and looked really, really good. Uh, he was involved in a couple of the goals and, and he signed from Leighton Orient actually when he was 17. He, he was a, an Orient graduate. Uh, he's from Hackney, George, not far from you. And, um, mm. you know, he, he's been a big part of Huddersfield's sort of new era in terms of development you know Huddersfield like Brentford got rid of their academy and they focused on picking up players around that sort of 16 17 18 um, age and then developing them from there Uh, and Rowe you know looks like he could be a a real success story it's still early days uh, but I'm looking forward to seeing more of him and I really enjoyed Stephen Chicken's column he covers Huddersfield for the examiner and he's excellent and we've had him on the pod before and I always make the time to read his piece on a Monday morning whether they win or lose he said um, Rowe made his breakthrough in the Premier League under Jan Sievert but Town have never quite been able to find his best position he's been tried at fullback wing back and on the wing on the right hand side but has never quite looked entirely comfortable in any of those roles even accounting for his youth but necessity is the mother of invention and sh- and she's just given birth to a beautiful baby left winger <laughs> so we're looking forward to that when Toffolo comes back from injury I expect he'll be back in his position at left wing back uh, and hopefully we can find a space for Rowe because uh, that's a, a, another positive to come out of what was a, a magnificent and sl- somewhat surprising result on Saturday we got some manager chat here George um, we got some games to talk about as well of course but QPR beat Bournemouth 2-1 on the weekend We'll talk about QPR in just a second. What an unbelievable run that they are on. But the news on Sunday coming that Jonathan Woodgate, who has been in the dugout as the interim manager of Bournemouth for the last five games, I think in all comps, since Jason Tindall left, having joined the club two days before Tindall was sacked, uh, kind of peculiarly, uh, he is going to be managing Bournemouth from now until the end of the season, at the very least, uh, taking them well, they hope to the playoffs and and maybe beyond. What did we make of this news? It, it sort of it, it quite swiftly followed reports that they were after Terry Henry, Patrick Vieira, John Terry, and it, yeah, it's, yeah, it's quite weird. It is a bit, isn't it? I mean, he's 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 not quite as good a footballer as those guys, but he wasn't far off it. Um, Galactica, exactly. Uh, it's 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 troubling for me this because I can't really work out the strategy again. You know, what has happened over the last couple of weeks to suggest that Jonathan Woodgate is the man to take Bournemouth up this season, which still seems to be the aim and should be the aim given they're currently occupying a playoff spot. Um, the performances have been fine. I mean, quite clearly the best, the best performance they've put in under him, or at least I would say was in the FA Cup against Burnley where they were absolutely brilliant. Um, but, you know, it's come off the back of a 3-1 defeat against QPR. It's come about 24 hours, basically, after it's been confirmed in the national press that they've approached, you know, ignoring the fact that it's Thierry Henry, that they've approached a club in order to speak to their manager, which in itself suggests that Woodgate wasn't the first choice. I'd be really intrigued to know what has happened in order for them to say, actually, you know what, let's just stick with what we've got, especially when Woodgate's only previous in, in managing a football club did not end particularly well with Aside, you know, with very different players, but similar aspirations. And you look at the way that Barrow have bounced back under Neil Warnock as well. Um, you know, that <laughs> it's hard to really pin that Borough malaise last season on, on anything else really than, than the change of manager. So, I mean, he seems like a, I always think he seems like a pretty intelligent guy talking about football, Jonathan Woodgate. Um, and he, he clearly has the the calibre, um, both in terms of his playing career and, and coaching from what he was doing under Tony Pulis at Borough to, to deserve a shot at a championship side again. 
Um, but it just feels quite similar to Jason Tindall's appointment. Whilst Woodgate might be a bigger name and might have some experience, it doesn't tally with the recruitment strategy in terms of the players. It doesn't tally with where their ambitions are and it doesn't tally with the play- the people that you mentioned that they supposedly wanted to speak to about the job. And it also doesn't make sense if their idea is, as I think we're going to maybe discuss with Bristol City, let's get someone in, steady the ship and then have a look in the summer. I mean, you're you're however many wins away from the Premier League again. Like you're you're in quite a good position here, and there's no, you know, there's no um, guarantee that if you fast forward a year's time and you're 31 games through next season, that you're going to be in a better position than this. So, a little bit surprised, but it's a uh, you know, Jonathan Woodgate now has an incredible opportunity, which I don't think he'd have anticipated getting when leaving Borough to become a Premier League manager or at least get himself long term a very very good Championship job. It's 15 games. Between now and the end of the season, they are more likely than not, you'd say, to finish in the top six. And then it's a lottery, isn't it? Anyone can win the playoffs and uh, a shot at being back in the Premier League. It'd be an incredible achievement if it does happen. But I I would just join you in being puzzled by the decision, by the timeline as well. uh, All a little bit strange. And of course, it's not like they went and put in an unbelievable performance no. Between seeking contact with Thierry Henry and Montreal Impact and appointing Woodgate on Saturday, uh, Sunday rather, they, they started quite well against QPR by all accounts. They were playing some, some quite pretty stuff. But when push came to shove, QPR won the game and won the game deservedly and finished strongly. Mm. And Bournemouth didn't lay much of a glove on them in the second half of that game. So it's, it's all very strange. You, I mean, it's interesting that you, you mentioned... You know, it, it's more than likely that Bournemouth will finish in the top six. And and like looking at the odds now, that's they, what I was over, going off. They, they, they overwhelmingly um, agree with you. Skybet, you know the the sponsors of this podcast, um, their eight to thirteen is the biggest price around, which isn't you know that sure. I mean, I, I I wouldn't be rushing to back them to finish in the top six as it stands. Not only because I'm not convinced they're playing particularly well, and I don't really like the appointment. And as you mentioned, they came up against the QPR side who are doing very good things at the moment and came off second best deservedly so but you've got you've got loads of teams down there now I mean a couple of weeks ago it felt like nobody wanted that six spot and we had a very defined six now you've got Cardiff who are absolutely flying Borough back in form under, under Warnock Barnsley pretty much the form team in the division and then I mean I'm not a fan of this Stokes team necessarily but there's definitely been an improvement this week which has come alongside two wins so I mean, Bournemouth are going to be kept to their task this is this isn't a a cakewalk for for Woodgate just to walk into the playoffs and have three games to try and get into the Premier League. If he doesn't improve them, then I think they'll fall out of it quite quickly. Absolutely. Well, in terms of QPR, I, I asked you to talk about them last week because I, I'm still a bit confused about things, but I'm certainly... You, they, they, they put your, your mid-season predictions on the changing wall. I've heard it. I was... They've got it up there. I was... Relegation. Be- I was very wrong. I didn't. That's the funny thing. I didn't say they were going to get relegated. There was a point. There was a point where I said I'm worried long term that they are moving in the wrong direction, and we'll have to, you know, we'll have to do, we'll have to have a couple of very good transfer windows to turn it around. But look, in the short term, they have turned it around. I was very wrong about Charlie Austin. I was very wrong about Stefan Johansson. I wasn't sure either of them would have this sort of impact. Um, of course, they're both loans. So uh, long term in the summer window, they're going to have to have another positive window. And, you know, the signing of Sam Field makes me think that they that, that, that that's possible if he's if he joins permanently. Whether they'll be able to get Austin, I don't know. Or Johansson, I don't know. They can't pay anything getting towards Premier League wages. So we'll see. But I really enjoyed Mark Warburton's post-match uh, 
press conference here. He said, we're a really good team on the front foot. We're a very average team on the back foot. And it made me think, like, with Warburton, I think we both like Warburton. We like watching his teams play at their best. I've never been convinced of any of his teams defensively, basically. And that's always front and centre of my mind when I think of a Warburton team. But he does speak well after a win, much more so. He, he, he often looks quite haunted after a defeat, doesn't he? But um, yeah, I enjoyed hearing him say that. I'd like to see you know more of the same from this QPR side because they've played some really good stuff since January. Everything's kind of clicking um, and I'm, I'm really, really enjoying it. So I think... Yeah. You know they're ten points off the playoffs, so it's at this point, at the very end of an answer, where you where you, you you get tempted to dangle a little, to dangle a leg out and say maybe they've got an outside chance of the playoffs. I think is <laughs> incredibly unlikely, but what an amazing turnaround over the last few weeks, and all credit to Warburton to those um, who 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 sanctioned those January transfers because it's brilliant. The the interesting thing about this QPR side or the one we saw on Saturday is that in terms of personnel for QPR, it was a pretty defensive team. You're looking, obviously, the, the back four of Dieng, Dickey, Cameron and Barbe is going to be fairly defensive. But then, you know, on basically playing as wing-backs, you've got Wallace and Kane. So we can kind of turn that into a back five. The midfield duo of Ball and Johansson, again, you know, you've got like a, a stopper and a and a resolute passer there. In your effect, then you've got Lyndon Dykes, who is a wrecking ball up front and not much else. So you've only really looking, you're only really looking at Elias Chair for that proper creator spark in the final third, although Ball, as I said, you know, is a, is, a, is a tidy passer. And then Charlie Austin for goals. So it's interesting, you know, the mentality of, of, of Warburton setting up what is on paper effectively a, a 5-3-2 with two sitting midfielders, but still saying, you know, take the game to them. I guess that probably works because then you're, you're good enough out of possession to have those defensive capabilities to, to contend with what Bournemouth had going forward. Well, in fact, we've seen a couple of times in the last few weeks how Todd Kane um, and the left wing back as well, as well have been contributing to them going forward. Uh, there was certainly a goal against Brentford, which was Kane swinging a brilliant crossfield ball to the left wing back for a cutback, which Austin finished, uh, and Kane obviously scoring on the weekend as well. So they're getting a lot from those wing backs, mm. um, which has kind of eased the load, I guess, creatively on on Big Ilias as well, and, and Austin finishing the chances more often than not. Bristol City nil, Barnsley won. I think when it comes to Barnsley, it's worth just replaying what we said about them last week um, because nothing's changed. In fact, they've won back-to-back games uh, since then. I said, I think they're the most likely playoff makers out of that group um, for me, uh, outside of the, the current top six. And if they can continue on the, the recent trend of cutting out individual errors, cutting down on set-piece goals and chances conceded, then I think everything else is, you know, and of course, maybe finish their chances at a slightly higher rate. Then I think that the stru- I think the sort of foundations are there for a for a, a proper playoff tilt. So since then, literally nothing has changed. They've won both games with no defensive errors, with no goals conceded from set pieces. Um, they they snatched they snatched a goal from a set piece here, um, but I think the shot count was fifteen to one. So it was a it was certainly a deserved win, albeit a narrow one. For Bristol City, I don't think. Thankfully, we have to um, talk about how terrible they are because we, we, <laughs> we can choose a, a different theme here. They've hired uh, Nigel Pearson, George, initially until the end of the season, so about four months or so. He's not bringing in any staff or anything. He's just joining the current setup. Um, and, yeah, he will take charge for four months and basically just needs a couple of wins. Just start turning the ship around, right? Uh, what do you make of this appointment? Of course, we spent a lot of time last summer talking about Bristol City's last appointment uh, where they interviewed every manager under the sun and and, uh, signed and hired their assistant manager instead. Yeah, this was 
quite surprising as well because I read Stephen Lansdowne, the Bristol City owner's interview with the local press after um, sacking Dean Holden, and he was very much, you know, saying I take he takes, not me. That'd be ridiculous if I took responsibility for that for that appointment. But Stephen Lansdowne took responsibility for the appointment, and he said it was important to take their time to get the right man in to do a proper interview process. There are a couple of names they wanted to talk to, draw up a list, do the first interview process, then have a chat, then go back and do the second round. And they just didn't do that. They just literally didn't do it. They had a chat with Nigel Pearson and thought, yeah, let's get him in. And and it's it's in no way that I, I don't think he's the right man because he, he very well could be. But again, it just it's just weird to see clubs openly saying this is our process and then binning off the process straight away maybe i mean in fairness the level of performance was so poor again on saturday that maybe he just thought look let's get in a firefighter then maybe they can continue that process behind the scenes certainly some of the names that were being linked who i were quite i was quite excited by eddie howe michael appleton russell martin i think probably all three of those names would much prefer to take on the job in June than now um, two of them because they've got jobs to finish in their current clubs and one because I think he'd much rather come into the club fresh with a full summer underway rather than take over what is an absolute shower at the moment um, but Pearson I think in, in itself is a, is a brilliant appointment I think he's he's a manager who we often forget put together one of the best championship sides we've ever seen in that Leicester side from 10 or so years ago um, the bulk of which went on to win the Premier League a couple of years later um, he's a guy who who's recently done pretty well in most jobs that he's he's come into. And a lot of Watford fans were pretty perturbed when he was um, dispensed with it towards the back end of last season in the Premier League. He's a guy whose character should get an immediate reaction as well. So, I mean, I, I like the, in terms of the pure appointment, I like it. It makes sense short term. If he does well, it makes sense to give him the job long term. Um, I'm just puzzled by the process. Well, maybe you should be in charge of the process then. You, you'd probably do it better. Um, I think this is an interesting one. It, it's it's one of those ones that we often get around this stage of the season where, assuming they, they get a few wins to ease any relegation concerns, which I'm sure they will, then they kind of finish the season without any pressure. And that's quite a nice conditions for a manager to work in early on. And it could help them to build something ahead of next season. I don't think we'll be able to say whether this is or has been a great appointment for them until, I mean, not even the summer. Like, not even if he does well and gets the job full time. I still don't think we could then say definitively, brilliant, uh, excellent appointment. So, you know, it, it could be a bit of a slow burner. We might have to wait till October, November and see see how they're looking at that stage. But you're absolutely right. He's done... He's done a brilliant job when he's had really good conditions, like he did at Exeter. He's obviously had um, some spells where that hasn't happened at all, where with Derby specifically, with Hull, um, and you know, and, and with Watford, I guess you could say he did a pretty good job, to be honest. If you look at the results, and how much do we judge him negatively for that spell at Watford? Not at all, really. So, look, it's it's kind of what we said the first time round for Bristol City. Their development as a club over the last five years or ten years got them to a point where they could, theoretically, we thought, attract the sort of manager that they wouldn't have been able to attract previously. Now, they didn't do that in the summer. They have done that now, uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing to seeing how it goes because, you know, there's there's so much angst about the direction of the club. Mark Ashton, specifically the CEO, just coming in for, for all sorts because of how bad the last, what, year, maybe stretching a little longer than that has been. 
are these guys complete idiots who have no idea what they're doing? No. Is it possible that they've made some some poor decisions which have impacted the team's results? Yes. Does that mean that they're always going to make bad decisions and the team will always be rubbish while they are in place and directing things? Not necessarily. So um, it'd be interesting to see how the sort of narrative around the club changes if this appointment goes well and if they finish the season strong and head into the next season with some confidence. But it's great to see Nigel Pearson back managing at this level and we hope that this side will look something like that Leicester side because, as you say, that was magnificent. So much happened in the championship that we're going to have to do the rest of the results, George, in something of a, a lucky dip system. Uh, <laughs> the results, and you can have the first draft of the lucky dip. Uh, Cardiff 4, Preston 0. Stoke 3, Luton 0. Reading 0, Borough 2. Forest 1, Blackburn 0. Sheffield Wednesday 0, Birmingham 1. Uh, which do you fancy there? I'll take two off your hands, Addy. Woohoo! Okay. I'll, t- I'll take the two home thrashings of Cardiff 4, Preston 0. Stoke 3, Luton 0. Because... I'm not sure there's a great deal to say apart from two away teams putting in terrible performances, like unbelievably poor, both of them. Um, like Luton's defensive work in this game against Stoke was was really, really appalling. Um, it, you know, cut through so easily for both the first goal and the second with two players one-on-one with the keeper and being able to square it to, to finish home. The, the third of which for the Fletcher goal was a terrible d- defensive mistake. The second one being just absolutely dominated by Nick Powell in the air as, as a few players seem to be this season. Um, Luton was shocking. And we've seen we've seen this Luton performance quite a few times. They're a proper Jekyll and Hyde team, this Luton side. Um, and maybe it's not surprising when you think of how you know, they are still punching above their weight when, when when the good performances do come. So we shouldn't judge them too harshly. But certainly not a very happy return to Stoke for Nathan Jones. And for Preston, it was kind of summed up by that ridiculous penalty situation where they were 2-0 down, um, get a penalty. Gallagher takes it, is scythed down by Aidan Flint after missing for the rebound. He's still basically injured, so can't take the next one. Ched Evans, terrible penalty. And Dylan Phillips makes the second save within a minute. And then they end up losing 4-0 um, with Cardiff looking very good on the break. And that is the interesting thing for me, I think, with this Cardiff side, is they strike me as a team who, once they go ahead, are going to be pretty hard to peg back because they look very solid with that trio of, of Morris and Nelson and, and Flint at the back. They've got a lot of pace to burn going forward on on the break with Murphy looking particularly dangerous um, and Kiefer Moore being of course, a, a brilliant goal scorer to have in that situation when you manage to get the space down the wings. So, um, yeah, a, a good result for Cardiff, um, but just and a good result for Stoke and good performances by both. But for Preston and Luton, um, a day worth forgetting. I'm trying to think who is the third player on the podium with David Wheeler of Wickham and Nick Powell of Stoke for being like the surprising beasts in the air. I, I, I have a think. Fabio Cannavaro? No. But he was so small, wasn't he, for a centre-back, and he still won about 99.9% of his aerial duels. This is an EFL podcast. Okay, well, yeah, who's the Cannavaro of, <laughs> of, of, the, of the EFL is what I'm saying. But isn't it funny how just what a, what a beast he is in the air? I mean, he absolutely flattened that poor fullback. who had no idea he was coming. Um, and he has scored a lot of headed goals this season, which is great. And Wheeler, you know, for someone who's probably 5'9", 5'10", uh, and a winger just wins so many balls in the air. It's uh, it's fantastic. Okay, I'll take some of the other ones. Uh, Reading lost 2-0 at home to Borough. That's three straight home defeats for Reading. And Pauno has got some thinking to do, I think. The reaction, the concern seems to be stemming from a lack of depth 
that's at least kind of the vibe that I'm getting from social media with Reading fans. The fact that outside of a starting eleven that we've spoken about a lot as looking very strong and working very well and, and being very well balanced both in terms of those who can create and score chances but also um, a pretty solid defensive unit as well the question now seems to be when they go behind let's say to a set piece where Dale Fry knocks it across for Ashley Fletcher how good are they at getting back into the game and do they have the game changers off the bench to you know to 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 be a genuine top six team that's the next that's the, that's kind of the next um the next target for them because three home defeats in the row is is, is never going to excite the fan base mm. from a Burris perspective you know after a really poor run that was a brilliant win a brilliant away performance Dale Fry back in the team I mean Warnock's been beating him up so much it's it's <laughs> been absolutely hilarious he's more proud and in love with Dale Fry than any of my grandparents were for me and, <laughs> and they really loved me and said a lot of nice things about me so that's saying it you know this was good Middlesbrough under Warnock from the first half of the season uh, and that's what we want to see more of. Fuzzy Dunlop uh, sent us a, a Sunday scouting report said just when it seemed playoffs were slipping away we seemed to have found some form and of course there are a couple of other teams who, who are feeling a bit like that uh, like that as well outside of the, of those playoff spots at the moment. Forrest uh, continued their improvement and their move up the table under Chris Hewton with a 1-0 win against Blackburn Alex Mighton scoring the win is always going to excite me, isn't it? Uh, an 18-year-old attacking player uh, who can play wide, who can play through the middle, um, really technical, skillful, exciting young player who, who kind of who just makes things happen in the final third. And I think you can tell the kid has something special by the fact that this was his seventh start of the season. They've by no means chucked him in at the deep end, but he's consistently playing games starting games over the last few months and when you look at the depth that they have in those attacking positions mm. and the fact that Chris Hewton is not known for being uh, someone who plays a lot of young players just because that's his natural inclination I think that really says a lot about Mighton and he looks to be the next cab off the rank for, for Forrest who have such an unbelievable record at churning out these talented players don't they um, I mean obviously Brennan Johnson on loan at Lincoln as well is, is older than than uh, Mighton. So it'd be interesting to know what the hierarchy will look like next season if Johnson is, is back wearing the red of Forest, but um, fantastic. Uh, and talking of young players, Blackburn lost again. Pressure on Tony Mowbray grows. He played the youngest starting 11 in the championship this season, uh, which was pretty eye-catching. Two 18-year-old centre-backs, um, who, to be fair, did pretty well. Like, Mighton, <laughs> Mighton's goal was a deflected shot from the edge of the box. I think Harwood Bellis and Branthwaite did pretty well, to be honest. Uh, but not quite enough uh, for Blackburn, despite Armstrong's best efforts. They're still not particularly cohesive. And at this stage of the season, that doesn't reflect particularly well on the manager, does it? I'm afraid. Um, lastly, Sheffield Wednesday nil, Birmingham won. An incredible, well, an incredibly important three points for Birmingham, who really had been on the most miserable run uh, and for whom... This win represents a move out of the relegation places that they had dropped into. Um, they'd only won one previously in their last 13 games. So um, how do they do it? Well, again, we can lean on some Sunday scout reports because we've got a few about this game. Uh, and I really think they do give us a pretty good idea of what happened. Connor said, nobody stood out. It was one of the worst games I've ever seen at this level. <laughs> Ryan said, not a game for the neutral. Blues Breakdown said, a turgid affair for most of the game. Um, so let's focus on the positives. Scott Hogan with a classic 
bit of movement, getting in front of the defender, really good first time finish, very much Hogan at his best, making the difference for Birmingham. Um, and a lot of love for Rekim Harper on loan from West Brom, young player that we've been wanting to see more from for the last three or four years now, to be honest, and who's, you know, the very fact that he was at West Brom wasn't helping him because of the way that they were bouncing through divisions. Um, and he's now getting game time and apparently was just clearly the class act, gliding across the pitch, looking very tidy. Uh, Dean Gripton said, I watched Rekim Harper glide around the football pitch while 30 other players waded through it. So um, next time <laughs> we get a chance to see Blues live, I'll have player cam on Rekim, who really is a classy player. Uh, before we get into League One, a uh, reminder that there are midweek fixtures in all three leagues this week. In the Championship, it's an interesting slate. There's no proper sort of... Um, six pointers at the top or the bottom but some really interesting matchups and we're really looking forward to being across that in midweek we'll obviously talk about all the results and uh, dish out some awards on totally football league show extra time on thursday um, but just a reminder that you can put yourself in with a chance of winning some pretty nice prizes if you download the skybet efo rewards app and if you check into your team's games you can do it now while you listen to the pod i think that's probably the best idea play the spinner uh, the prizes are things like a copy of Football Manager 2021, uh, and a free match pass for iFollow or for your club's streaming service, a replica EFL match ball, potentially the best of the lot, a signed shirt uh, from your team. You can win all of that if you check in, play the spinner, Skybet EFL rewards app, download it today for free. Uh, George, League One, there's a team going very well at the top. I mean, there's two teams in the top two spots going very well. Lincoln, not at their best, but winning against Wigan. Uh, a game that was lit up by a screamer from pod favourite Callum Lang. But Lincoln came back into it immediately and scored a nice winning goal. Good assist from George Grant. Shock. Uh, really nice take from Tom Hopper. Genuinely a bit of a shock. Um, <laughs> and uh, and a good win for them. But it's Peterborough, I think, that we should talk about because 3-0 winners against Wimbledon. Four wins in a row now for Posh. Looking pretty ominous for the rest of the league, I would say. Yeah, but I do think this... Peterborough Wimbledon game should come with an asterisk because Posh weren't good first half. Posh Posh were poor first half, um, and I'm sure any Posh fan watching would have will, will agree with that. And Wimbledon looked like they were probably the more likely team to take the lead. Now, of course, that is not what happened. And early in the second half, Peterborough went ahead, and you know were, were pretty well clear before Johnson Clark Harris's fairly fortunate third goal. Um, but there was an, I mean, and Peterborough's home form is remarkably good. I think that's is that six wins in their last seven at home during one of them. Um, but maybe just a little bit, I think for both Lincoln and, and Peter, these were, were really important wins because they were wins that came against poor teams when they weren't at their best. Now, Lincoln also weren't particularly good. Wigan um, at one all probably looked as likely to win the game as Lincoln did. Uh, you mentioned Hopper's goal, which was a, a brilliant finish and the one bit of quality that really changed the game there. Um, and for Peterborough, you know, at half time, they'd have sat there thinking, right, this is we're in we're in a difficult position here. We're coming up against a side with a new manager in Mark Robinson, who've taken the game to us at our own place. How do we react? And they reacted very well with two goals early on from Sammy Smodix that took the game away from the visitors. So you are right, and in, in, in a sense, these are big wins. But at the same time, they're big wins maybe because the two teams weren't at their fluent best, but still got the three points and three points for a win is three points for a win no matter how you play. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would note going forward, Peterborough, are we're going to be talking about them a lot, not just because they're currently in the top two and looking good for automatic promotion, but if you look at the fixture list and the run-ins of the teams in and around them, they have got the hardest run-in, the toughest fixture list. And I think 
basically what that means is it's going to feel like Peterborough are involved in all the big League One games from now till the end of the season. And I, for one, am very excited about that because I think their games are really interesting. I mean, in this one, Wimbledon coped very well in the first half to the extent that Darren Ferguson switched up the formation at half time from 3-4-3 to 4-2-3-1 and it worked and I like that I like that they can do that without changing personnel I think the the um the versatility especially of Joe Ward is really important in this sense and it's a huge it's just such a positive for them that they can make in-game switches not lose any coherence in fact actually get stronger get better and um you know for Mark Robinson of Wimbledon his first proper game since uh, since getting the job full time by all accounts really impressive the way that they the way that they played in the first half based on what he knew Peterborough would do in terms of their setup and how they would play but sadly in the second half after Posh's switch Darren Ferguson getting the better of him and of course that that attacking trio just too good in the end um talking of uh, well you mentioned asterisk there uh, I'm going to talk about Obelix because I reckon uh, I reckon Sunderland's new owner Kirill Louis Dreyfus probably likes a bit of Asterix and Obelix. Uh, very very popular amongst uh, French children that. Um, and he is uh, obviously a youngster, 23. Uh, it's interesting that the sort of coverage around this 23 year old from a very very wealthy family, the heir to a Swiss commodities firm, and he takes over Sunderland. And I think initially there are you sort of raise your eyebrows at someone that that young having a, a position of real importance at a football club that really needs good direction and so far everything that has been reported and the early moves that have been made while the takeover was happening um, such as hiring Christian Speakman to be director of football Lee Johnson as the new manager and then as soon as the the takeover was rubber stamped seemingly more hires on the way just to, to sort of modernise I guess the football operations structure you know, it would be wrong, I think, to categorise this as just a plaything of a very young rich person. But it is pretty unusual, isn't it? You have to admit, a 23-year-old French Swissman uh, taking over Sunderland. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 pretty it's pretty lively. It it is it is lively. I mean, it's important to remember that the three guys um, who were mostly involved in the previous ownership structure in Stuart Donald, um, Charlie Methven and Juan Sartori in terms of the, of the money and the, the kind of the, the board representation, you know, they're still holding some holding within the club. So um, how much of a new era this is, or just a new face and some new cash behind ideas that were already there? Um, possibly. I mean, as, as you mentioned, Sunderland, it felt were moving massively in the right direction before this announcement, whether it was a restructuring of the, of the recruitment there, whether it was um, the process in appointing Lee Johnson, whether it was the appointment of Christian Speedman. As a whole club, it feels like they're modernising. And, you know, you, you think back to Sunderland Till I Die season two, and you think back to the episode where Stuart Donald is about to explode whilst working out if he can afford to fork out two million more for, for Will Grigg than he said was his max about half an hour before. And, you know, that is, a, you know, a, a, an infamous scene of TV, but in a snapshot, it showed everything that was wrong with that football club and the way it was being run and the way it was being managed and the way that they looked to get their way out of, of League One by just spending money without any process in place at all to work out who they should be spending it on. And those days, it feels like are very much over. And even if they were already over before Kira Louis-Dreyfus came in, um, I think having a new figurehead and the perception, at least, of a new dawn could only be a positive thing for the club. 
Yeah, good win against Burton on the weekend. Um, interesting that with a bit of a dearth of centre-backs available, um, Johnson went with three at the back, but McLaughlin and Luke 09, Sunderland's Swiss Army nice, uh, Swiss Army knife. <laughs> very nice. He's very nice. Very, very nice, nice man and a Swiss Army knife uh, either side of, of Dion Sanderson. It worked really well. Um, I don't want to get carried away uh, with this just because, you know, the two goals, the first two goals anyway, were both great strikes from distance following set piece situations um but it definitely reflects well that you know switching up the shape switching up the personnel didn't impact the 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 cohesion of the team and i think that that speaks to some good work being done by lee johnson on the training ground and it's definitely you know i'm i'm feeling i'm excited to see put it this way the last the last um chunk of the season from sunderland under lee johnson to see where they can end up and you know this is the first time that i've really been excited to to watch Sunderland games, to to enjoy their performances and, and what they're trying to do, especially going forward. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing more of it. I, I said on Sky on Friday that they need someone other than White scoring from open play. No one uh, had scored more than two goals from open play in the league for them, apart from White this season. Now, I don't know if Ledbitter's goal, where basically a free kick gets tapped sideways to him and he smashes it in from 25 yards. I guess <laughs> I guess that's from he, open... he looked surprised that it came to him initially. <laughs> I guess that's from open play. So we'll, we'll, we'll give him... He's on three now from open play. Um, but yeah, more goal scorers chipping in has got to be a good thing. And White scoring one of those goals that I think you only score when you're just on a ridiculous form. Like, nice little bit of movement, clipped in, and then a little shot on the turn through the defender's legs and perfectly into the corner. Really, really good stuff. Also quite a significant result, I thought, maybe slipping under the radar a bit, George, is Blackpool beating Pompey uh, mm. on both sides, really, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you basically whether Blackpool are a little bit under the radar. They've won four in five. And how much we are concerned about Portsmouth, who have lost four of their last seven. Um, and although they've had some good results in that time, in all of the defeats, they've looked really poor and, and they're struggling to create chances. Certainly uh, they did at the weekend anyway. So what did you make of this one? Yeah, I mean, I do think Black, Blackpool are probably a bit under the radar because they're one of these sides who have loads of games in hand. You know, they've got four games in hand on on Hull. If they were to win all four of those games, they'd only be one point behind Hull. So they are very much a team who are in the mix for the playoffs um, based on what they've done so far, but probably aren't being credited with, with that. Um, and this was another performance that shows that they are you know, capable of beating any, any side in this league. And it was a moment of real quality from Jerry Yates in order to get the goal. Um, you know, he was fouled on halfway, stayed in his feet. So Drover Raggett who kind of stood off him and then put a beautiful finish with his right foot into the bottom left-hand corner. Um, and that was a goal worthy of winning the game. Um, and Pompey, again, at home, were just very poor. And, um, you know, albeit against decent opposition, it feels like they are a shadow of the team that we that we saw previously in the season and, um, and need to work out a way to get to, back to winning ways. Kenny Jacket, of course, not involved in... Um, well, he's not in, he's he's temporarily not in charge as he recovers from an operation, but he was at Fratton Park um, on Saturday. So I do wonder if maybe what's happened since that announcement might force his hand to come back a bit earlier than he anticipated. Yeah, I mean, Blackpool themselves only won one of their last seven. Um, but from that point, from basically towards the end of October... They, you know, they've picked up points up there with with pretty much the best of them in the league. So it might be that that slow start under Neil Critchley um, kind of holds them back. But again, there's just this huge chunk of teams, aren't there, in League One who are all more or less picking up the same amount of points. Um, and it makes it very, very difficult to predict and very, very exciting to cover. Another team in this bracket, 
are MK Dons, who, you know, they're they're in 11th place now. This is a team who were in and around the relegation spots, it felt like, for the first two, three months of the season. Here they are in the top half now, and they'll certainly be looking at the playoffs. They they can't all make it in, which is a shame, mm. because... Um, <laughs> but they've won three in a row, MK Dons, and, and they beat Northampton in a, in a ding-dong, 4-3 on the weekend. It was certainly not their most precise performance, I think it's fair <laughs> to say. Uh, and Northampton caused them... A lot of problems for a team that had only scored, I think, one goal uh, in their previous six or seven games. So um, certainly work to do at the back for MK Dons, and, and that's you know that that has been a bit of a feature of their play all season is just conceding goals where you watch them back and you think that's just a little bit soft. I'd like to, I'd still like to see them tighten up a little bit defensively, um, but they've got so much going forward, don't they? And you know, Grig scored, Jerome scored, Charlie Brown, who's who they signed in January who used to score a ton of goals for the Chelsea youth team, you know, that was his first senior goal. Nice to have your striker coming off and you've already got two providing plenty when they start to have someone coming off, um, putting the pressure on them and, and getting a goal as well. It was a really nice run to the near post and a good finish as well. So very encouraging from them. They got five points, George, from their first eight games, MK Dons. Since then, they've got 36 from 21. Um, so again, in that chunk of time... <laughs> you know towards the top of teams in in that chunk mm. of 21 games i think third or fourth best record in the league so it's a fascinating division very very tough to predict and um, bristol rovers might get harder to predict easier to predict what do you think about their appointment of of joey barton he, he's their third permanent manager of the season after garner and tisdale fourth <laughs> uh fourth if you count widrington who's who's had a couple of caretaker spells yeah again i don't want to sound like a broken record here but you question the process it's the third managerial appointment in 12 months the first was a very very highly rated young coach who had no management um, experience the second was a been there and done it EFL manager who um, had won promotions with teams in the past and then the third is a high profile ex-footballer who's had one spell of management at this level and was proven to be pretty competent if nothing beyond so I I it just, I just don't understand. Like what, you know, if you're an owner, how does your the requirements of who you want to be running the playing side of your football club change three times so drastically in twelve months? It doesn't make sense to me. Um, but that isn't to say that um, that isn't to say that Joey Barton isn't the right appointment. I think he, as I said, even though the headlines will be because of his playing days, and I've seen a fair few Bristol Rovers fans not happy about the appointment purely on that basis of, of the man rather than the manager. Um, I think he did an okay job at Fleetwood. I think his, I, I think part of the good work that he did was the quality of player he was able to attract to the club, maybe rather than necessarily the um, the coaching side of things and the way they were set out. But you know, they're a team who got to the playoff semi-finals last season, and they were on the brink of the, of the playoffs last time. And he was pretty well supported in a way that, you know, I think Ben Garner was pretty well supported last summer in the players that Bristol Rovers were able to bring in. You know, it was that transfer activity that had a lot of people saying they thought they were dark horses to challenge towards the top end of the table. So is he a better fit than Tisdale? He's probably got a higher ceiling. Is he a better fit than Ben Garner? I don't, still don't know if Ben Garner is any good at management of football, so I don't know. Um, there wasn't an overwhelming amount of evidence to suggest that Joey Barton is a manager going to the very top but at the same time it wouldn't be a huge surprise he did a good job at Fleetwood and um, 
and yeah, I mean, he should get a reaction, I guess, at at, uh, at Bristol Rovers. Yeah, well, they kind of need one. They're still in and around the, the the relegation fight. There's that group of seven teams, and they're very much part of that. Um, from 18th downwards, that you know, there's a leap of what is it now? Seven points between Shrews in 16th and Rochdale in 18th. So they're part of that chunk uh, of seven teams, of which four will go down, and they're currently just out of it, two points clear of of Wimbledon. But Barton, you know, he does need. This isn't like the other half of the city where Nigel Pearson more or less just needs to get a couple of wins and then um you know he can he can kind of coast towards the end of the season to an extent that that's not really the case here it's going to be a bit of a uh, a scrap so it'd be interesting to see how they do i mean yeah that that fleetwood side they were excellent for much of the the last part of last season before the pandemic hit they were in unbelievably good form they looked like just a winning machine uh that Fleetwood side that he'd put together and as you say he had managed to attract some very high profile players who were playing very well for him I think this squad is completely different so I'm looking forward to seeing how he copes with that you know part uh, I'm not saying this is some ridiculously young inexperienced squad but certainly compared to his Fleetwood squad from last season that is definitely the case um and of course he left Fleetwood amid sort of suggestions and hints from the chairman that you know they wanted to go in a diff- different direction basically Fleetwood were going to have to kind of cut the cut the cost really um start cutting costs I should say and maybe Barton wasn't that keen to be a part of more of a focus on young players and youth and youth development so uh, I think there's a lot of interest a- around this appointment for me I think it's a pretty good one uh, for the reasons you said they actually started this season pretty well, Barton's Fleetwood side. Mm. Set, they won seven of their first 14 games. So That performance against Hull live on Sky was one of the best performances I've seen this season. Mm. Well, quite. So uh, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing how this one goes, I must say. Down at the bottom, uh, Swindon, the only team in that group of seven to win. Uh, a hugely important victory for them. Not 100% sure how they did it against Crew. Uh, Scott Swindon fan sent us a Sunday scouting report saying, we stole this one off Crew." Uh, and we had a crew fan who messaged to say, I would have been pretty angry if this had been a draw. So you can imagine how I feel, the fact that we <laughs> that we lost it, um, which I enjoyed. But um, thrilled to see favourite other pods, Scott Twine, get the winner. Nice, a good take. By no means a spectacular rocket from 35 yards, but uh, a good finish. And, and Wallacott, who they've got on an emergency loan in goal from Bristol City, he made one very eye-catching save um, to keep them at 1-1. Um, but yeah. Certainly a smash and grab, I think it's fair to say. A much-needed win to escape the bottom four, but they did ride their luck. And I I don't imagine there are too many Swindon fans who are um, who are taking this result and getting carried away because performances under John Sheridan have still been very, very poor. And just lastly, we don't, we don't normally talk about draws, but I think we have to mention the story of the EFL weekend, George, James yes. Coppinger, who write the theme tune, sing the theme tune, or rather... The, the, <laughs> Design the shirt, score in the shirt. <laughs> Design the shirt, get given some special edition boots by your teammates, uh, come off the bench and score in your gold kit that you've designed with your son, wearing white boots with a gold trim that are a gift from your teammates to commemorate your amazing career, which is winding to an end. I mean, it it, it was perfect, wasn't it? It was one of the, you know, I, I'm... I probably lack sentiment at times when it comes to this, but this is like tear in the eye stuff, really, especially because it was to come back from two goals down to draw three all perfect free kick, which perfectly encapsulated what made what has made Coppinger such a good player in the EFL for the last, what, 20 years, basically. Um, magnificent stuff. L- things you love to see. 
again and against a side you know just above them who geographically aren't too far away either uh yeah amazing amazing strike from a great player and a great story as well you know i'm not a massive fan as as long-term listeners of the pod will know with uh, football clothes but um certainly in this case i could um yeah i was asked on five live on saturday what i wanted to talk about in league one and i wanted to talk about james coppin during the shirt designer with his two sons as well which i loved they helped they helped him design it um, and if you really want to know more about this, he gave an interview. He, he discusses why he chose every aspect of the kit as well. Lovely bit of kit design chat. I'm sure that'll be right up the street of many listeners. Uh, in League Two, um, Mansfield nil, Cambridge three feels like a pretty significant result. The the Mansfield Stag Party. Uh, so it's just a hangover. It's just a massive hangover. S- some arrests have been made, and the <laughs> the air has been let out of the balloon pretty quickly on the Stag Party. I'm afraid, George. Um, quite the opposite for Cambridge, who under Mark Bonner are continually questioned as to whether they have the staying power. Um, had a run where they got thumped by Salford and then drew it home to South End and followed up with a 3-0 win away at Mansfield. Pretty impressive. Uh, helps that they have uh, a very high-scoring striker, a very unselfish striker who makes his job a lot easier and the best creator in the league in Wes Houlihan uh, and uh, yet another impressive young manager for this level, which I think is very exciting. Yeah, I mean, th- those who, who'd kind of written off Cambridge as being um, temporary leaders of the league will also, again, point to the fact that this was another three goals from seven shots for Cambridge um, and say that the sustainability of, of them continually getting these three points might have to be questioned. But, you know, we're at that stage of the season now where these three points and having a, a gap towards the top end of the table is, is so important. And they came to a Mansfield side who... You know, the performance levels, as I said, in the betting show were still quite high and just completely dismantled them. Um, the pitch was not good, it's worth pointing out. Um, but Cambridge certainly showing here that, um, you know, with Mullen back in the goals and, as you say, Houlihan pulling the strings, um, you know, the midfield they have sitting in behind those strikers maybe doesn't get enough credit as well beyond Houlihan. Um, o- O'Neill, Liam O'Neill playing a key part here as well. So, um yeah, massive for Cambridge. And as you say, Mark Bonner continuing continuing to do such a good job. League Two's big story at the moment, though, uh, is the revival of Bradford City. And more specifically, who is behind the revival of Bradford City? Uh, since Stuart McCall left and the joint interim managers, as they were at that time, Truman and Sellers came in. They have picked up more points than anyone else in the league. 24 points specifically from 11 games with seven wins, just one defeat and three draws. The only team in League Two over two points per game in that spell. So showing a consistency to win games that no other team at the level is showing. Um, Just brilliant organisation off the ball is probably what has stood out for me in terms of the tactics behind it, the reasons behind it. But added to that, they seemingly can find a goal-scoring threat, George, kind of no matter who plays. have been a lot of different people and players chipping in recently, whether it's Danny Rowe, Charles Vernon, Andy Cook, who got both goals on the weekend, all of whom joined in January. Um, you know, head of recruitment, Lee Turnbull, is getting a lot of credit for January signings that, that were made and have impacted the team straight away. But then there's other players like Callum Cook, who's just a magnificent central midfield player on his day. And he seems to be having his day more and more uh, under Truman and Sellers. Today, it was confirmed that they are permanent joint managers. We can drop the interim now. We can drop the caretaker. You, you, you cannot argue 
than that what they've done has completely earned this. And now we have some unbelievably young guys with no managerial experience co-managing Bradford City. And it's uh it's it's just another great story in the EFL. Yeah, it is. Um although the hard work starts now because they've they've done what they've done to get hold of the job. They've got the full support clearly of the of the, Brent, of the Bradford fan base, as you'd expect, given what they've done. As you mentioned, they they brought in well, they haven't brought in players, but the the kind of regime since they've been in have brought in players who they have immediately settled into life there. You know, Andy Cook with the two goals here, who they plucked off Mansfield uh, in January. Um, Cook, Callum Cook has been a completely different player under these two compared to how he was under McCall himself. Um, and then, so improving players who are already there, bringing in players to improve them as well, getting the results. Um, you know, they're, they're going to continue to have to battle against the fact that A, they're a, they're a joint management duo, B, they've got a lack of experience because, you know, bad runs will come. That that's just a fact here, and you always feel like inexperienced managers have to face up to those and face up to more questions about their capabilities than more experienced ones when that does happen. But um, I'm delighted for them that they've got the chance here, and going to Cheltenham and beating them two nil, um, you know that should shut up any doubters at least for the meantime. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's it's magnificent. We're actually going to be talking about these guys on Sky Sports on Friday night. So please make sure that you uh, set that to record or watch live if you've got time on Friday night around 10.15pm. We'll be talking about uh, Truman and Sellers and also some of the other managerial in-season appointments who have had a big impact across the EFL. You can tweet us if you want to guess who we're going to talk about. Uh, Newport nil, Forest Green 2. This was a significant result on Sunday George, and you know, if I'm bigging up Bradford and I'm bigging up Cambridge, then I need to big up Forest Green as well, because it's three wins in a row, four in their last five. All the teams that they've beaten have kind of tricky fixtures. You might argue that Newport, in their current guys, are a bit of a pushover, and you would probably have a point to say that. Um, but you know, is everything this Forest Green have been this season, which appears to have elevated them from previous seasons, where they've been? pretty where they've been very process based and they've always had very good underlying numbers uh, but when push came to shove quite often they were found lacking when it came from going to you know a playoff side to an automatic promotion side but now they really do look pretty robust George certainly the recent run um, very very impressive and they're, they're kind of in well they're in a very very good position now when it comes to automatic promotion yeah I mean their next four games are midweek they've got South End at home then they've got Colchester at home on Saturday. And then they've got Stevenage away on next next midweek. And then they've got Grimsby away on Saturday. So they're playing four of the teams really battling at the bottom end of the table before they face Morecambe at home on the 9th of March. And, you know, it would be a bit of a surprise, I guess, if they weren't top of the league, I think, come the 9th of March, given those four games. Because they look, they've lost five games this season. They, they're just a very, very functional footballing side who, if Jamil Matt could finish a bit better, would probably have more points this season as well. Um, it was, you know, th- that Newport pitch is does not make things very easy for any teams, even if Newport themselves seem to struggle to play on it. Um, but they were comfortable winners on Sunday. And I would say it looks pretty ominous. I'd be pretty surprised now if, if Forest Green weren't a League One side next season. Now, uh, Barrow lost 2-1 to Morecambe. On the weekend, that was very sweet for Morecambe fans, not least to beat aside a local rival of sorts, uh, not least because their striker, Cole Stockton, produced two of the most delightful 
uh, assists that you're likely to see from a, a strapping number nine in League Two, I think. Um, and also because it was their first win since Adam Phillips was snatched from them uh, and given to Accrington on deadline day by Burnley, taking away their, well, one of their key attacking players, it's fair to say. Um, unfortunately, that win was overshadowed somewhat by the news on Sunday that Barrow, uh, like Bristol Rovers, uh, have sacked their second manager of the season, this time Michael Jolly, uh, who I think had less than 10 games, certainly, between seven and nine, I would say. Um, and club chairman, <laughs> club chairman Paul Hornby saying it's become apparent even in such a short space of time that unfortunately the board and Michael have differing visions for how this team should play, which has led to this change being made. We believe that it's best to recognise this now and make the change early so that the team can concentrate on the remaining games of the season. The first bit, I think we have to say, well, it doesn't reflect very well on Michael Jolly. But for me, even more so, it doesn't reflect very well on the decision makers. And a bit like what you've said previously on how they are making their decisions and how they came to appoint Michael Jolly. You know, if if the case was that he uh, misrepresented himself in the interview and promised a load of football that they didn't see with for themselves, sadly, that that's kind of part of their job to to work out what's real and what isn't. Um, pretty bizarre around this one. I mean, Rob Kelly is back in charge on a caretaker basis until the end of the season. They had a great spell under him. Between, yeah. between Dunn and Jolly, but he didn't want the job at that stage. No. So uh, it's a peculiar one, and they've certainly got some work to do in order to get themselves out of the relegation zone. What was your reaction to this news as it broke on Sunday? Well, I think if, you're, if you've had two managers this season um, and their caretaker in the middle, and about 30% of your points came when the caretaker was in charge, even if he doesn't want the job full-time, just get him back in, save the season and then go again. Um, and, you know, you look at Rob Kelly's coaching past and what he's done in the game and, you know, his the calibre that he has behind him, what he's done, his experience is probably better, <laughs> more impressive than either David Dunn or Michael Jolly. So, um, yeah, I, I think this makes sense. And, and that's no slight on, on Michael Jolly himself, although I am looking forward to seeing um, Michael Jolly's Wikipedia page in a couple of weeks when Michael's had a chance to sit down and, and update us with what happened at Barrow. Cheeky, cheeky. Uh, Scunthorpe, four wins in a row now. There was a large gap, wasn't there, between their third win uh, and their fourth because of various cancelled games, but they were straight back at it. A 3-1 win against Harrogate. Uh, Ryan Loft catching the eye again, their, their number nine, uh, who has four goals in four games. Really positive news for them was that Kevin Von Vane came off the bench. He's recovered from another injury, which really have held him back in the last few years. Another really positive day. Uh, another good performance from January signing Jem Karakan, uh, who's been a brilliant signing for them. And I don't want to get carried away because, George, they only had four shots uh, and scored three goals here. So, you know, it was a game that was very well managed, if not total domination. And I suppose that's me laying down the gauntlet and saying, OK, Scunny, um, go and beat Bolton next weekend. Uh, or sorry, in midweek, and then we really will get excited. Go and beat Cheltenham. On the weekend, how about Cambridge and Salford and then Exeter? I mean, they really do have the most remarkably tough uh, run of fixtures coming up. So we will we will find out just how much Scunthorpe have improved, regardless of the turnaround from from essentially relegation fodder uh, in the first half of the season to, to what we're seeing now is very very impressive. So well done to Neil Cox, the manager, uh, and to those January additions um, for helping to turn it round. Uh, Bolton and Crawley. Both nicked narrow ones. Bolton against Southend, George Crawley against Colchester United. Some ugly, some ugly games, those. And, and uh, again, not ones necessarily to write home about. No, Bolton got the win thanks to some 
uncharacteristically poor goalkeeping from Mark Oxley. The ball, I mean, it was a freak goal, basically. The ball going miles in the air above Oxley's crossbar and kind of landed. He had to basically had to parry it in front of him rather than catch it because it was so close to the crossbar and they got the win from that. Um, again, Bolton not playing particularly well, but, but getting the three points, which pushes them ever closer to the playoff places and makes fans wonder if they could still have a late go getting promoted. And for Crawley, um, Colchester had their chances in the game. Crawley were very, very poor again um, and had very little of it. Um, it would have been a, a, a near Colchester own goal was the closest either side came to a goal uh, until a very late winner from Tilly. But a poor game between two poor sides. Six points Colchester got in their last 12 league games, uh, mm. which is pretty grim. They're still 10 points clear of the relegation zone. Um, so a, a huge cushion still somehow. Um, but one that will disappear pretty quickly if uh, if Rob Kelly has his way at Barrow, that's for sure. Um, and if they continue in this vein. Uh, before we go, got to shout out Dylan Bahambula. An absolutely unbelievable goal for Oldham yeah. against Tranmere. Made better by the fact that Oldham were down to 10 men, kind of under the cosh as well. 2-1 down to Tranmere. It looked to all intents and purposes like Tranmere would coast to a win. Bahambula with other ideas. A, a rare piece of skill and long-range quality from a player that shows these flashes uh, more regularly than I think anyone else I can think of in the division. Uh, he's been an amazing player to watch this season. And it'd be interesting to see where his career goes from here. It'd be really interesting to see if anyone higher up the pyramid, League One or the Championship, um, has a go at Bahambula in the transfer market this summer because some of the stuff that he can do is is pretty high-catching, it's fair to say. Um, guys, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Lots of managing news, some big games over the weekend, which is why it's been something of an extended episode, um, but hopefully all good stuff. Please do make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you listen to our other shows, The Betting Show on a Thursday. Uh, the Totally Football League show, Extra Time, also comes out on a Thursday. That's where we will look back at all the midweek action, some big games across all three leagues. Um, we're just about keeping our head above water at the moment uh, in what is a, a pretty crazy time uh, in life and in football. So we hope that you're still enjoying listening to the pod. Get in touch with us anytime at NTT20pod uh, on Twitter. And make sure you download the Skybet EFL Rewards app and check in to your team's game this midweek. Play the spinner for a chance to win prizes. Football Manager 2021, if you haven't got that, that's up for grabs. EFL, Mitre Match Balls. Uh, you've got match passes as well and signed shirts from the club of your choice. So plenty up for grabs if you download and play the spinner. Check into your team's game on the Skybet EFL Rewards app. We will talk again later on in the week. <laughs>